Welcome to the Moot Podcast. This recording was made at the Moot Spiritual Retreat in May 2010, exploring the theme of how the Trinity informs our understanding of God and for a distinctly Christian understanding of the spiritual community. This is the second of three recordings led by Mark Berry, missionary leader of the Safe Space Community in Telford in England. Okay, you'll, you'll recognise this image. I think it'd be fair to say that if you've showed it to a lot of people now, most people would recognise it. Um, and most people would be able to say, ah, Rublev's icon, or at least they'd recognise it. Ten years ago, I'm not sure that would be the case. And it's, it's grown in its importance as an image. It's very rare nowadays that if you go to a, a vicarage and go and sit in a clergy study that there isn't a picture <laughs> of it somewhere. Um, and this particular image is, is really common and has been for the last five or six years, I guess. Maybe a little bit longer, but, but much more common now. And there are a number of things. I mean, you, I'm sure you've spent a lot of time as a community. I know you have, looking and reflecting on this image and, and images like it. Um, Mike's image, um, but there are there are many things about this image which, when you look at it and when you look deep into it, are striking. There's actually some confusion over what this image is supposed to represent. The natural assumption for most people is it's it's the Trinity, um, which yes, I guess it is. But the other aspect, the other image, that, the story that people link it to is, is um, the three visitors, Abram's three visitors at the Oaks of Mamre. Um, so the whole sense of hospitality. And obviously looking at it, it has a Eucharistic sacramental um, thread to it as well. But you can look at that and say, you know, there are some things which are um, important in the way it's posed, in the posture, in the colour scheme, um, so you'll notice, for example, that, that there, is, there are common colours between the three characters and each one has a little bit of, you know, so we've got one with the blue robe, one with the blue um, tunic, one with the, the little bit of blue showing at the front. So you've got these sort of little elements that, that thread through. Um, there's, Ian will be able to do a much longer and, and detailed meditation on this image, I'm sure, which you've done before, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> um, but it... You know, it's an image, it's, it's interesting, and they're around the, the bowl or the cup. But what I guess is, I think, most striking about this image, um, as somebody who studied art a little bit myself years ago um, and spent a bit of time working in the media entertainment industry, is thinking about how, how eyes are drawn. And... I remember studying years, like I say, when I was at art college, looking at, at how paintings were constructed. And one of the concepts that they spent a lot of time talking about was negative space. How we can read a lot into the negative space of an image. Um, and because it's the negative space which actually connects. And, and the negative space in this image is the brightest part of it. Now, OK, we, we can... Take this with a little bit of pinch of salt because it's an image which has faded over time. But the bit that always draws my attention when I look at this image initially, and really the way to do this is like to sort of, um, in a sense, squint your eyes and you can pick up the negative spaces. It's the table. It's the table which is, in a way, um, the focus of this image. Now, we think about the three individuals and we've got the three halos 
which again are bright and, and stand out. But there's something about the way that the table and the, the bowl or the cup or whatever it is that's in the centre of the table is almost that, to me, seems to be the focus. Its position at the centre, its brightness, the fact that if you look at all of the three characters, they overlap and spread into the table. Their hands are on the table. It's the focal point. It's, it's the, the negative space. It's the bit that actually connects them, which is the significant part of the image, the part that draws the eye. So for me, there's something about, as I, I look at that image and I begin to think about this idea that within community, there is some sense of the negative space. It, it's that which, which connects us, which is significant. The fact that we all tie into something which is none of us, but at the same time all of us, which is for me kind of the intriguing bit, and, and maybe why this image is so powerful, um, because the faces are fairly, you know, they're not looking out at us, they're not very well defined, in fact, proportionally, they're actually ridiculously small, and yet the table that negative space which draws our eye. Now, okay, we can link this into the Oaks of Mamre and the whole sense of, of hospitality uh, and around the table. But particularly thinking in terms of trinity and, and community, this sense of the, the otherness, which is not one of us as an individual, but is something that, that actually ties us in together, that makes us into a whole, um, you know, it's it's the glue, it's it's the space between, it's the um, the synapses that connect the nodes. Um, you know, that actually is where community exists. So it is the table where community exists, which we'll talk about later on. And we gather, and it is that which connects us. Um, the word that we're going to kind of explore a little bit this morning is perichoresis. I don't know whether you're familiar with this term, this word. No. There are a number of, of I think, really significant theological concepts which, for some reason, in the 20 and 21st century, have become so buried in our culture, in our understanding, in our, in our search for who God is, that, that we just never hear them. Or when we do hear them, they're kind of reduced to something fairly insignificant. Um, and the two that really get us as a community, which we'll talk a little bit about, are perichoresis and shalom. And those two words have become really important to us as we kind of explore what does it mean to be a community and what does it mean to be a community whose passion is to see the world transformed. Because in some ways they speak about a similar thing. You know, shalom, which we all know the word, but has become reduced to mean, you know, peace, simply peace. Um, as in the absence of strife. And yet it's a much deeper word which speaks about community. It speaks about wholeness found in harmony. Um, it speaks about healing, about mutuality. Um, about restoration of, of a world order that, that is radically different, um, which it speaks about paradise. 
in, in the sense of, of, uh, of pardes, the Persian term paradise, which meant the garden. It seeks about restoring what creation was supposed to be. And perichoresis, to me, does the same thing, in that it, it speaks about restoring something of what it means to be community, and a community that is um, modelled on the community that is God. And I wonder if perhaps our, our individuality, and as our individualism as a culture, has so kind of struggled with this idea of a God who is community, that, that we've lost some sense of the perichoretic nature what it, of, of who God is, and therefore who, who we are. I mean, how often will we hear phrases like people say, you know, even Christian people, religion is a private business. You know, it's a private affair. You don't, you know, we, we all have our, you know, that's an individual thing. Or this sense that people talk about their church, this sense of ownership. You know, I like my worship in my way. I don't do it that way. That's not my thing. I don't fit there. And it's a me, it's a beginning with this sense of who, who I am. So I want, to, I want to explore a little bit about this term um, perichoresis. The first thing um, about perichoresis is that perichoresis speaks about coexistence and um, self-surrender. John 1, um, which you'll be familiar with, verses 1 to 2, um, talks about, well, I'll read it out to you, I might as well. Passages. If people have got Bibles and I shout out Bible passages, some of you may like to try and find them before me to save me bothering searching for them. John 1, um, verse 1 to 2, uh, very familiar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And if we look at the whole um, sense of creation, which we'll do in a moment, we see that right at the beginning we get this idea that God was complex. Um, God was multiform at the beginning. And there's a tension already right at the start of when we talk about the creation narratives, how on earth we pin down who God was. Um, you know, even right at that beginning, it's not like, okay, there was God and God created this, that and the other. It's like, okay, right at the beginning, we've got this mystery of, of coexistence for the logos the word was with god was god and at the beginning was with god and was god and so already we've got this knot appearing as i was mentioning last night of okay well there's a complexity here which is really difficult to grapple with boff um and, and i really if you're interested in exploring this and want to be able to argue with ian about it um <laughs> Boff, uh, this is a wonderful book, um, Boff's, from the liberation theology kind of, not a big book, and just wonderfully rich, um, and uh, Boff says, the divine three are different and irreducible, one is not the other, but none is defined without leaving out the others, each divine person affirms itself by affirming the other person's and surrendering totally to those persons. The persons are distinct so as to be able to surrender to the others and to be in communion. Thus there is a wealth in unity and not mere uniformity. And he goes on, there's, there's loads of stuff. But that idea that in coexistence we also have this sense of self-surrender, that they have to exist together in order to be able to surrender. Um, and Boff goes on to talk about community and about how that shapes community, which we'll look at 
um, you know, in a little while. But what seems to be clear as we kind of explore, as clear as we can be with Scripture, um, you can edit that bit out, no, um, <laughs> is that there is this complexity of coexistence. So we can't say that there is a creation order within the Trinity, that it was God the Father who created the Son, and then, you know, the, the, the Spirit is emitted, you know, or flows from the Son. That actually there's a, there's, there is some sense, even right at the beginning, of this dance, this complexity. <coughs> and it exists in a state of mutual self-surrender. It exists in this sense that the Trinity is always, as I mentioned last night, pointing to the other um, and surrendering to the other. So the son is always saying in the name of the father. And the father is always saying, look to my son. And the spirit is always saying, you know, I come from the son and I point to the father. This whole <laughs> sense of surrendering in to who the community is. That's the negative space. So you can almost imagine that image. If you go back to the image that I had yesterday, we've, we've kind of explored this as the sense of the wheel that, you know, there is this kind of amorphous thing in the middle which is who we are but but it is only made up from the connections from our willingness to be connected to each other both um, in a sort of you know embracing way but also all of the complex interactions that happen between us and there's something therefore I think about the trinity about this um, surrendering in this mutual self-surrender that is not seeking power it's not seeking to be elevated, to be the boss, but always pointing to the other. My dad, um, years ago, and it is years ago, because I've now been married 18 years, would you believe? <laughs> Before I got married, um, said, told me, he said, uh, he said the, the, the key to a successful marriage, um, and if only it were this easy, um, <laughs> is... Always to give. He said, but the only way it works is if there's a mutual giving. If one is always giving and one is always receiving, it will destroy itself. If both are always trying to receive, it will destroy itself. Because somebody is always going to be left wanting. Somebody is going to be drained. He said, the only way it can work is if both of you commit to give to the other. And in the process of both of you giving, you will both receive. But the emphasis is to give. And receiving happens because you are willing to accept the giving of the other, not because you want to take. And in, a, in that sense, I think he captured something about this perichoresis. That the, the Trinity exists in the giving, not in the taking. Um, and in that self-surrender into the purpose. So there is a common purpose. Um, so that's the first thing, coexistence. John seventeen twenty one. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And we heard that yesterday, we heard that again. But if, so just as you are in me, and I am in you, and in that description which, which Jesus is using to pray for the church, 
he describes something about the nature of God because he uses a description of the nature of God, of the Godhead. And when I say God, I mean the whole of God. I mean the Godhead, what we call the God community. So when he describes the nature of God in order to describe the relationship of the church and within the church, there's, there's something important in there. Because we don't often get Jesus saying, you know, giving us that, that window onto the nature of God. We hear how God, how, how sometimes he says God is like, or the kingdom of God is like, to, to people he's speaking to. But here, in this context, Jesus is actually speaking to the Father. And you'll have to excuse if I just use, there are so many descriptions, and we we'll, may come on to them, of how you want to call the Father, Son, and Spirit, and I'm just using that as shorthand, so please just be aware that that isn't a, a, a comprehensive description, and we tend to call God the Father as the source, that's the language we tend to use, um, which I'll come on to later on. But in that little moment, we get God, we get God talking to God, describing God. So that's a real exciting, for me, little window on the reality of the nature of God. Because in, in, in one sense, here we have a time when Jesus is not interpreting God for people. He's not saying, oh, well, look, you can't understand the concept of God. So, look, here is an, an, a parable or an analogy or a picture to give you a glimpse of who God is. Here God is talking to God. So there's just straight honesty here, which I really like. And to me, that's really exciting because there in, those, in that little sentence, there's just as you are in me, no, as you are in me and I am in you. Mutual indwelling. The sense that we cannot separate out Father, Son and Spirit because there is this mutual indwelling. The Son dwells within the Father who also dwells within the Son and the Spirit. And it becomes rather complicated to understand. But I think there is a snapshot of what that, you know, to actually wrestle with that thing all... Well, there isn't a sense of exclusive individualism here. There is a sense of real indwelling. Um, and we can begin to extrapolate that and think, you know, if we go fast forward to Christ on the cross. Now, I don't know how many of you are parents here, um, but I'm a dad. I've got a son. And I feel my son's pain probably sometimes more than he does which is kind of strange in a way because i when if he if he falls over and has a you know an accident i not only feel his pain almost kind of um you know i can sometimes almost feel his pain you know i, I can feel it manifest in myself sometimes because part of me is is imagining what it must feel like for him and feel of feeling pity and feeling kind of, but then also I I feel his pain because I participate in his pain because I worry because he's my son. He's like, oh, what's happened to him? Is he hurt? Oh no! What's going? You know, and he knows how he's feeling, but I don't know. So there's that real sense of of worry, and then thirdly, I feel his pain because, or I feel pain because it's my job to protect him, and I've failed. Now, it may not be anything significant, but I'm, in, I'm actively involved in that pain at that moment. So we fast forward to Jesus on the cross, and nobody can tell me, I will not have it, that
that Jesus took all the pain on his shoulders. That God the Father was sat there watching it, not involved. I just can't see that. I can't grasp that. Because if, you know, even if we interpret, you know, what it would feel like as a dad to see uh, a son suffering, how much pain would I suffer as a father to see my son suffering? And it's not like, you know, wishy-washy kind of um, pain up here. It's real pain. Um, and then if we, you know, so there is that sense of, you know, I am participating in that pain. And I, I just think that in that moment that when we see, you know, we cannot say, oh, Jesus did all of that and, and God was busy doing something else at the time. Because that just isn't the way that relationships work. God was, as, I believe, God the Father was in as much pain at that moment as God the Son. Um, and here we have something that's even deeper, which is not only, you know, was that, but there was a rupture going on. I'm going to use that word a few times over the next few days, because it's, I think it's a really important word, because it describes, it's, it's a word that has real meaning. It's not just a kind of separation. There's a rupture, there's a ripping apart at that moment. And when Jesus cries, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This isn't a, you know, hey, look at me. This is a ripping apart of something deeply mystical and deeply real. Not just a sort of, oh, he's abandoned me, he's, he's turned his back on me. This is a tearing at the seams in that moment because of this mutual indwelling, you know, um, so, so that we have this sense of this mutual indwelling, coexistence and self-surrender, but also this real sense of indwelling, mutual indwelling. I don't know why it's decided to stop. It'll come up. But, so we've got coexistence and self-surrender. There we go. Um, we've got mutual indwelling, but we've also got mutual involvement. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host by the breath of his mouth. Here we have... The three classic names, the three classic words to describe the Trinity in one sentence. We have the Lord, we have the Word, and we have the breath. So we've got Yahweh, we've got um, Logos, and we've got Ruach. All engaged in the process of creation. All engaged in the process of creation. Now, to me, this speaks of this mutual involvement. That it is impossible to be um, modalist in our understanding of the Trinity. Because all of God was involved in creation. And we can therefore start to make some assumptions and say, well, if all of God was involved in creation, then we can assume that all of God was involved in redemption. And that all of God is involved in recreation. This mutual involvement. And uh, this idea then of, you know, that, um, of source, word and breath. That God is dynamic. And reliant on all of God in order to, to make things happen. I mean, we can think about, uh, about communication. And if we think of God as communication, we can think about language. We've got, you know... Linguist, linguists here and you know and therapists and all sorts of things but words how we how we make meaning is by speech is by language 
And there are three parts of making a word come out. There's the imagination, the source, the learned language, the thought process that decides what word is going to mean what we want to make it mean. There's the physical. There's the physical process of the formation of the word in the mouth, in the muscles of the mouth, in the jaw, in that process of actually making the mouth move in the right way in order to make the word come, to shape the word. But then there's also got to be the breath. Because if we don't have the breath, the word is simply silent. It's just the motions of our mouth. So we've got those three aspects, the source, the word, the making and the shaping of the word, and the breath, the dynamic which breathes it forward. And those three processes, and I, when I've searched over the years for, for kind of, you know, we've all done the, the steam, water, ice, and we've done the egg with the shell and the white, and the, you know, it's like all the different... But I've never hit on a, um, a, a picture of Trinity which, for me, works better than source, word, and breath. Because it's not only a picture of how the three are so intrinsically linked... And how the three need each other to make it happen. But also what they do, which is to make meaning. To make meaning. To bring things, to bring thoughts into being. To communicate, to make sense, to be relational. So that I think that picture that we have describes somehow how this Trinity idea works. That this is about making meaning, this is about the, the sense of all three parts together. About the willingness and the ability... For all three to work together, um, and and to make that together, um, you know, there are conditions, as I'm sure the therapists among us know, which actually create rips in this system, and how frustrating and difficult it is for people where the words that are formed in the head don't come out. I had once had a situation; it was kind of funny actually. I got I got beaten up a few years ago when I was a teenager and ended up in hospital with concussion, and um, I had. I had a, basically a rip in this system with the concussion. So the words that I was making in my head, physically I couldn't form, and they were coming out upside down and back to front. And it was the most bizarre experience, because I could hear the words in my head, but when they came out, I could hear that they were totally different. And it was this complete loss of control, um, and, and strange sense of... Something is not right here because I'm not able to make... And, it, and, it, and then there was a frustration, sorry, because I wasn't able to make myself understood. So there was this kind of bizarre sense of complete loss of control and splitting of who I was and my ability to be me and my ability to communicate as well. Because all three parts were needed and had to be um, somehow in tension and working together. So another way of, of putting it... Um, that we played with is imagination, revelation, and dynamic. That we have the sense that the God who creates and who imagines, a God who reveals creation, and a dynamic which blows it forward, which puts life into it. And again, we can look at, at the Psalms and we can look at the Old Testament and see the process of creation, of how God had to breathe the dynamic into the formed earth in order for it to take on life. So... What does that mean for us then? Okay, we're going to... Um, I've got... Uh, 
four four headings that we're going to just spend a few minutes, um, just a couple of minutes in you know only in, on these ones, just to ask ask the question: Well, what does it mean? What would it look like for community? And the first one is unity, and there's a passage you might want to look at for that, which is two Corinthians one twelve to fourteen. What is this understanding of Trinity, of, of perichoresis? What does it mean for unity? 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 14, which you will uh, know very well. That's... Okay, Mike, you can flow over with these because they, they kind of flow, but you might want to input this into the, the next passage, into this discussion about what it means for community, what the whole idea of perichoresis means for community. Um, this... Ephesians 2, verse 19. Throw that one into the mix as well. There's a sort of um, a deliberate flow to these, to the order of these passages when I get the right one at the beginning, and I apologise for that with this. And I think there's something deeply mystical. Um, and I think you're right to be asking difficult questions about how we are community. Because the challenge to be community is a bloody tough one, um, especially when we start talking about unity. Um, one of our guys, Terry, who um, is a fantastic guy, and I'll, he won't mind me telling you this, he's, he's a bin man. You know, he's not had a great deal of education, um, but he's just, he's, we, we tease him and, and, um, in one sense because he, he's got one thing that he's passionate about. And we, tell, you know, we, we require him to tell us this on at least a weekly basis which is that it is by our love for one another that others will know that we're the Lord's disciples. And we just say, look, keep, keep bringing us back to this simple truth that actually it is, you know, if we're, if we're passionate about being mission, um, then actually the fundamental tool that we have for being mission is our love for one another. So we need to wrestle with that. Now, that's not saying that loving one another is easy, but actually we need to actively and proactively learn to love one another and struggle with loving one another. And that, that's tough. There has to be an, an aspect of grace in that. Um, again, we adopt that because that's um, you know, part of who God is. And there has to be a real sense of grace uh, of how we desperately try to create space for relationship and love often despite our differences, and that is, that's really hard. But for me, when I start to look at this, I think if you look at these four passages particularly, and I think there is, like I say, there is a flow to them, which is, okay, let's start with this challenge. The challenge is for unity. The challenge is to be community. And we can all sit around here and we can wrestle with how are we community, and we can talk about our struggles, which is good, and we can talk about the tensions and we can talk about models and practices about how to be community. But we can't just do it that way. Um, you know, the, there was a book by Tobias Jones, and I don't know if some of you have read, read it. He's um, a journalist, and he went, he went around the world looking at communities, at communes and communities. And at the end of the book, what he basically says is, you know, all sorts of, from different traditions and different practices and different reasons of being, and he says the only ones that, that um, he really thought were really getting some way to be real community are not just people who came together with a, you know, a, a single purpose or a particular kind of um, a, agenda. He said we're Christian communities. 
and he didn't really, couldn't really understand why it is. And I was sort of reflecting on that and thinking about this sense of perichoresis, because we can think about God who is self-surrendering, and this mutual self-surrender, mutual indwelling, mutual involvement. But the, for me, what starts to get me excited and the hairs on the back of my neck go up is that actually we're not simply talking about how do we model God's perichoretic nature. Because here I think in Scripture, and the more we look into it, the more I look into it, the more I discover this, is that actually Trinity isn't simply a model, although it is a model, that here we are in a, in a world that doesn't know how to do community anymore. Um, and there is a calling on us, I believe really strongly, to be modelling a uh, community that models this perichoretic nature for the world. We need to be saying, hey, guys, look, this is how we do community. However, it isn't as simple as that. Because what I think we read in Scripture in some of these passages, particularly Ephesians 2, and that's why it's the second one is um, in, in, in this thing here, is actually this isn't just a model, but this is an invitation. In that passage in Ephesians 2, it talks about us being part of God's household. And there is something really, when you, when you stop and think about that, something absolutely mind-blowing about that, about that. Because here God is saying, okay, this isn't just look at how we do community and copy it, but actually we are adopting you, embracing you into our community. So how you do community is not simply about practices, but is about a spiritual discipline of learning from relationship. It's about participation in community, in the God community. Um, and what makes that work, what brings life to that, is the Holy Spirit. You know, that the Holy Spirit breathes life into who we are. Um, and we are only enabled to do that, to be part of the God community, because we have been invited in, because we have been adopted as co-heirs with Christ, and because the Holy Spirit breathes life into us and into that relationship. So it's mystical. It's not just model, it's a mystical reality. Um, and from that is the call to be engaged in God's process of recreation. And I think that's what we begin to see in 2 Corinthians. The sense that, that God is, is in the process of recreating, of liberating, of bringing freedom. Um, and so we can see that as a freedom in who we are, but a freedom in, in what we bring, and as the Spirit flows through us. So... There's this real sense, and, and I've got a couple of quotes, and as we finish, Fides, which will come up in just a moment. To participate in God means that there is the ever-present opportunity to be aligned with a movement of communication beyond ourselves, which is pure love, and which is also a movement of the will. We can lean upon a movement which is a willing response of a son to a father, becoming co-actors and co-narrators with his yes-amen to the father's purpose. And also... Leonardo Boff. The community of the Blessed Trinity is not closed in on itself. It opens outward. All creation means an overflow of life and communion of the three divine persons, inviting all creatures, especially human creatures, to also enter into the place of communion between themselves and with the divine persons. And I think, and we're going to talk, we'll talk a bit later on about some kind of more of story and, and struggle. To seek to have an understanding of the Trinity and to seek to have an understanding of church as the community of, of, of God followers and God seekers 
then the only way to do that is to be willing to participate, to be willing to participate with each other, but also to be willing to participate with God and say it isn't about structures and it isn't about um, processes. It's about being willing to surrender ourselves into a God who surrenders him, her, itself within that. Um, and to me, that's the joy of the perichoresis, that it is an invitation, not just a model. And we'll talk about that a bit further. Thank you for listening to this Moot podcast. For more information on the Moot community and its resources, please visit www.moot.uk.net.